Hello, and welcome to Apostolic Voice. I'm your host, Ryan French, and I want to begin the program by correcting an error in episode number four, the last episode. I made the same error in the related RyanAFrench.com article called Breakers, Takers, Givers, Makers, What Kind of Saint Are You? My brain slipped, and I said the men in Judges chapter 7 that lapped up water like dogs were not allowed to fight with Gideon, but it was the other way around. The men who put their faces into the water were not allowed to fight with Gideon. So please forgive that error, and much thanks to Bruce Burns for noticing and calling it to my attention. If a mistake is made, I want to make it right every time. Today, I want to read an open letter to Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, which I've posted at RyanAFrench.com. For those unfamiliar with Dr. Peterson's work, he's the author of a terrific book called 12 Rules for Life, a noted university professor and psychologist. He rose to fame while resisting Canadian attempts to force people to use transgender preferred pronouns or face legal action. His words, books, and lectures have garnered a massive YouTube and podcast following. However, his public wrestling with faith and Christianity has been the most interesting thing to me. Meanwhile, he's become a kindly critic and a unique spokesman for Christians worldwide. The letter is brief and you'll find it fascinating, I promise. Because Dr. Peterson and so many other cultural commentators and observers have cited the staggering decline in the Catholic Church and really all liturgical churches, I feel inspired to go through an article from RyanAFrench.com called Christianity Isn't Dying, Dead Churches Are Dying. All these articles will be linked in the show notes if you're interested in them. Also, I'll be reading my brand new poem called The End is Beginning, inspired by a series my dad, Dr. Talmadge French, has been going through in our Wednesday night Bible studies here at the church. He's been talking about the end times, and uh, this is an end time poem. We also have a crazy, fun, much-anticipated French family gross good grade at the very end of the program featuring brand-new Snickers cinnamon bun candy bars. I just have no idea if those will be any good. We shall see. We shall see. Stay tuned, and we'll get started. Letter to Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, dated February 15, 2022. Thanks for listening in, everyone. Dear Dr. Peterson, please forgive the gimmicky aspect of this letter. Your immense popularity or repulsiveness, depending on whom you're talking to, renders you unreachable by normal means. I'm under no illusion that you will see this letter. However, I sincerely hope this reaches you at some point. Allow me to begin by expressing my sincere earnestness in praying for your health and for the health and safety of your family, whom you seem to love dearly. Also, I'd like to thank you for your thoughtful, meaningful, and life-impacting contributions to national conversations. 12 Rules for Life has roused many forgotten young men to rally to the challenges of existence with courage, integrity, and goodness. 
Along with millions, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and following your lectures. I've cheered in admiration as you've resolutely refused to be cowed by woke media personalities or bullied into submission by cultural fads. You're a voice of reason, logic, and morality. And that's beyond refreshing in this post-postmodern or meta-modernist culture. I'd love to hear your thoughts on post versus post-post versus meta-modernism. It must be strange navigating the complexities of fame on a worldwide platform. And I, for one, am appreciative that you do so with grace and kindness, even when in strong disagreement. I've heard you ponder the question of why you're so popular among Christians several times and why your lectures on Genesis garnered overwhelming positive attention. Even though you're not a theologian, I thoroughly enjoy your religious conversations. Your influence has impacted me to take a renewed interest in Carl Jung. I'm indebted to you for that as I quote Jung several times in a soon-to-be-released book that takes a biblical look at alcohol. Anyway, most people you speak with lean more philosophical than evangelical. Although you remain cautiously critical of Orthodox Christianity, the liturgical influence on your religious or philosophical thinking is obvious. For the sake of transparency, I'm a minister within a marginalized segment of Christianity. Interestingly, postmodernism helped and hurt us at the same time. It hurt in the sense that culture moved away from seeking or even believing in absolutes or truth. Yet it helped because we're less ostracized due to our beliefs. We were severely persecuted at the turn of the 20th century, for example. These words that I'm about to say might sound a little foreign. I'm a oneness apostolic Pentecostal Christian. We're the fastest growing religious movement in the world, even as liturgical churches are shrinking. In the past 100 plus years, we've exploded to the tune of approximately 50 million worldwide. Even though we are technically evangelical by definition, historically, our evangelical brethren have been loath to allow us that title. I mention my beliefs not because I expect you to find my theology particularly interesting, although you might, but because I believe my perspective allows a unique insight into your immense popularity among Christians of all stripes. You are tremendously popular in my circles and the converging circles of Christianity that I walk in, and here's why. You intellectually articulate the defense of our existence. That's the nutshell version. Beyond that, you're the most intelligent person using your influence to help us maintain space and have a voice in the public space. Even when you don't agree with everything we say or believe, you brilliantly defend our right to hold those thoughts and speak them out loud, whether in our churches, public forums, or the universities. Your unique one-foot-in-Christianity-and-one-foot-outside-Christianity stance gives you gravitas blatantly religious leaders can't wield. Sincere Christians saw the woke wave coming decades before it hit culture full force. We were silenced and demonized in the public schools. Our children were bullied into submission by Stalin-like totalitarian tactics. The universities turned Christian shaming into an art form. I've been forbidden to open up city council meetings by praying in the name of Jesus, and that's in the Bible Belt of the United States. That's only one small aspect of the anti-free speech overreach directed at Christians in public forums. We've watched our cities covered in graffiti while the Ten Commandments were removed from our courtrooms. 
We've had to fight like mad to keep the government from forcing us to fund abortions for people on our payrolls. Same-sex couples who've never darkened the doors of our churches routinely try to force us to marry them in our buildings, hanging legal action over our heads if we don't comply. If we dare try to help children suffering from gender dysphoria overcome their confusion lovingly, we're called hate mongers and worse. And I could go on and on. We're subjugated to name-calling constantly while being told to keep our mouths shut. Free speech is only allowed for certain woke groups these days. All this seemed to go from a simmer to a boil when the transgender movement began doing its best to force us into ignoring science and radically changing definitions. Then you stepped onto the scene and became the voice we could not use in that arena. Your brilliance, coupled with genuine humility, captured our consciousness. As we got to know you, we realized you were a true friend and a sincere moralist. And while we may approach morality from divergent directions, we hold it dear nonetheless. In some ways, your notoriety reminds me of Aaron. And by the way, I'm greatly anticipating your book and lectures on Exodus. As you know, much has been assumed about the Bible's description of Moses as being slow of speech and slow of tongue. Was Moses simply inarticulate? Did he have a stutter? I've always leaned towards the theory that Moses had some kind of speech impediment. Whatever it was, God wanted Moses to overcome it and speak. But Moses resisted God and failed to use his voice. God relented and sent Aaron to be Moses' spokesman before Pharaoh and often before the people too. Moses' failure to speak up created a vacuum, particularly in the political and secular realm. That Aaron naturally filled. God even acknowledged that Aaron was intelligent and eloquent compared to Moses. That's Exodus 4, 14 through 16. It seems you have become the confident voice the church was too afraid or perhaps unable to use. You're the unofficial spokesperson, if you will. Admittedly, Dr. Peterson, my primary motivation for writing is a burning desire to humbly add something to an ongoing thread that permeates your conversations. First, you've mentioned a particular mystical religious encounter that was personal to you. Also, the question of transcendent mysterious occurrences, their origins, and repeatability comes up periodically. Lately, I've been noticing more and more scientific questions involving the use of psychedelics to replicate or achieve a spiritually transformative experience. I find myself talking to your podcast through my AirPods when those topics come up, mainly because the transformative encounter described in those conversations, although rare in liturgical circles, are frequent experiences for Pentecostals. We experience many types of transcendent encounters with God, but most notable is what the book of Acts refers to as speaking in other tongues, which can be a known language, although previously unlearned, or a heavenly language. But it produces an ecstasy and clarity like nothing in this world can offer. The biblical phenomenon is commonly referred to as glossolalia in academic circles. Apostolics consider it to be a necessary element in the process of redemption. Regardless, I've witnessed countless individuals give up smoking, various drugs, and alcohol without any withdrawal symptoms after experiencing glossolalia. We would refer to it as receiving the Holy Spirit. 
It's that well-documented, transformative religious experience you've mentioned at various times. And I know how strange this can sound to a person unfamiliar with it. However, is it stranger than looking for answers in psychedelics? Having witnessed your intellectual curiosity at play, I'm reasonably confident you would find the data interesting at the very least. Hundreds of millions have experienced glossolalia. Many of those millions have been permanently changed for the good. If this sounds overly preachy, I apologize. I am a preacher, and there's nothing I can do to change that reality. Believe it or not, I've tried very hard to avoid inserting gobs of theology, dogma, and personal opinions into this letter. My only hope is that perhaps you will use a measure of your vast intellect to investigate glossolalia with a level of openness. Whatever else, it can't just be discarded outright or ignored with any genuine intellectual honesty. Just the plethora of historical biblical accounts, starting in Isaiah, going into Mark, and all through the book of Acts and beyond, sets a narrative that's difficult to reject offhand. Please continue, Dr. Peterson, to speak against impending malevolence courageously. May you and your family be blessed. I pray your body remains as strong as your mind. And I'll bid you farewell with one of my favorite passages from the book of Exodus, Exodus 1, 8 through 12. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. This passage encourages me when I'm feeling weak and insignificant and adversaries seem intensely overwhelming. It's a reminder that even enemies perceive the strengths that I can't see. Furthermore, affliction placed upon righteous people is a precursor to growth and eventual deliverance. The End is Beginning, Narrative Poem by Ryan French The slumbering snore baffled the sages. Long tattered rags masked the seismic rage. For eons, scribes waited with bated breath. Ominous groans bolted prophets out of sleep. Fickle throngs belabored on with stopped-up ears. Battle drums beat somewhere in time's vast space, faintly thumping as if hell were marching in place. The great bear rose and the red dragon groaned. The eagle fluttered while the rose tilted and swayed. Have you not seen? Have you not heard? The time is at hand. The end is beginning. Faintly a horn blasts in the distance dreamily. A weary few were watching and listening easily. Others barely noticed until their screens glistened. Where did they go? The anchors droned on and on. An old tape squawked, I wish we'd all been ready. The irony of something ignored so warily ignited feelings of agony until now left unexcited. How soon before vials break and wrath explodes, 
a trumpet blast from heavenly places like a war cry. Have you not seen? Have you not heard? The time is at hand. The end is beginning. Two fire-breathing preachers wandered outside, speaking truths the world long shouted down. The beginning of sorrows and woe is trickling now. They shout in the streets like wild men of old. Beastly fury stamps them out. They lie there cold. Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, John, no one knows. Fear, hunger, pain, madness, confusion, delusion, crouch in the shadows, waiting to pounce gleefully. What does this mean, every human lip screams? Have you not seen? Have you not heard? The time is at hand. The end is beginning. take a minute here and just push back on the idea that Christianity is dying. In a certain sense, Christianity is dying, if you mean by it the mainline, denominational, liturgical Christianity. Catholicism is certainly dying. The Methodist Church is dying. The Lutheran Church is dying. But Christianity is not dying. Dead churches are dying. But If you listen to commentators, especially secular commentators, they really enjoy talking about the decline of Christianity as though every aspect of Christianity is dying. And if you listen long enough, they'll convince you that everyone's becoming an atheist and there's hardly any Christians left. And that's simply not true. There's a lot of attention placed on Europe, for example, and their long-standing mainline, mainstream Uh, liturgical version of Christianity is dying, and that's probably a good thing, because true Christianity, the apostolic faith has been on the rise now for 100 plus years, and that revival has been taking place and sweeping across the world, beginning in the United States. And I believe that many of these iconoclasts and commentators purposely exaggerate the death of Christianity. They want you to focus on the decline in certain areas so that you won't focus on the reality of revival that's happening almost without any commentary. It's it's happening underneath the radar, so to speak, and it's the rise of Pentecostalism, particularly oneness Pentecostalism that has been drastically on the rise. And this purposeful exaggeration is really a manipulative bullying tactic. The idea is to make Christians, sincere Christians, feel as if their belief system is in a hopeless state of decline. And I don't just mean Pentecostals, but there are many sincere Christians of other denominations. And the tactic, the secular tactic, is to make them feel as if they are completely alone in their sincerity, completely alone in their true faith, their passionate belief system. Because ostracism is very powerful. If you can feel cut off, if you can feel weird or odd or unique in some way uh, and made to feel like an outsider, which really is the idea. We've been seeing this in the public forums for a long time. Christians are purposely made to feel as if they're on the outside looking in. They have no business in the mainstream. They've, They've got to be on the outside. 
And that pushes Christians to feel adversarial and defensive all the time. That's not a good way to feel. And Christians, especially young Christians, teenage Christians or young adult Christians, they are particularly vulnerable to this bullying tactic, this manipulation tactic, because they can feel silly and insignificant much easier than a mature adult. Ironically, though, secular culture doesn't put this kind of microscope or use this tactic on Muslims, for example, or or odd minorities. Transgenderism is considered mainstream, even though that's an incredibly small percentage of people around the world and in the United States. Much larger, uh, for example, just my faith, Oneness Pentecostals. There are many, many, many more Oneness Pentecostals, Holy Ghost-filled people around the world than transgenders or even homosexuals, and yet they're mainstream. We're not. This is a purposeful exaggeration, manipulation, and a tactic to make us feel insignificant and insecure. As I said, young people are particularly vulnerable to this. So mature Christians have to be aware of that and and encourage younger Christians, younger apostolics accordingly. It's weird because there's a push for Christians to not be evangelistic. It's okay for us to hold our faith. It's okay for you to believe what you believe, but just let everyone else alone. Let them believe what they believe. Yet, agnostics and atheists are extremely evangelistic in their attempts to proselytize Christians, especially young Christians in in colleges, for example, universities. They proselytize Christians into their cult of faithful faithlessness. They want them to believe what they believe, which is to not believe in God, and say that faith is crazy, and yet it takes faith to not believe in God. So it's a, it's a circular way of thinking. It's very dangerous. And I'm pushing against that because if all you do is get caught up in the news and caught up in the commentary of the day, you can begin feeling, you can buy into that lie, you can buy into that narrative. Uh, the word people are using a lot now is misinformation and disinformation. So there is a disinformation, a misinformation campaign out there to get you to believe that you are somehow almost completely isolated and alone, and it's simply not true. It's worth noting that Christianity in the book of Acts, well, and even if you trace all the way back to our Judeo roots and you go into the Old Testament and you look at the nation of Israel and Abraham, you see that everything about Christianity and Judaism was birthed out of a marginalized minority, a marginalized people, the Jews. Uh, Abraham was certainly marginalized. Even Jesus was born into a minority and born into a very marginalized situation, a Jewish culture. And, and Jesus himself was born and established in relative obscurity. And the church was birthed in Jerusalem, in the upper room, in relative obscurity. Genuine practicing Christians are not strangers to persecution, and we've never been strangers to minority status. People don't think of us that way, but numbers and growth, and, and sometimes you know we get so focused on revival and church growth, that's a good thing. It's only a good thing, though, if we're prioritizing it correctly, and that is 
that we want to grow because we love people and we want them to be saved. If we just want numerical growth or financial growth or something to brag about or something to take pictures of and put it on social media and say, hey, look, we're the biggest thing in town, that's the wrong motivation. And it's never been God's purpose or plan for the church. Growth is only good when it's done in the spirit of we love people and we want their soul to be saved. We desire for them to be with us in heaven. And so God is sending us genuine outpourings and and people are being birthed into the church. That's good growth. That's healthy growth. We want that. And we should want that for the right reasons. Our motivation needs to be pure at the same time. And we can get so caught up in that desire to grow and see revival, as we say in our circles, and that's wonderful. But we can mistakenly conflate truth and the proof of truth as being a large group of people or or being the, the dominant force in a nation or in a city or in a community. All you have to do is just open up your Bible for a few seconds and you'll see that's never been the proof of truth or the proof of even right doctrine. Many, many times in Scripture, there was just one person or a few people or a minority of people who were clinging to truth while the rest of the world was was pushing down on that group of people, putting pressure on them. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think of Daniel. Think of all of these situations where... They're trying to cling the truth. Daniel said, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's meat. And then they didn't want him to pray. And so they changed the law so that he would be punished, even killed for praying. And he refused to stop praying. I'm always amazed because Daniel could have, you know, just kept praying, but maybe done it a little more secretively. But Daniel wasn't willing to do that. He wasn't going to compromise, even faced with death. Daniel refused to compromise who he was and what he was in God. He said, I'm going to fling the windows open wide, and I'm going to pray towards Jerusalem just like I do every day, and I'm going to do it three times a day. I'm not going to do it less. I'm not going to do it quietly. I'm not going to do it secretly. This is who I am. The world is usually pretty comfortable if we have our beliefs and we just never talk about them or or never try to convince others that truth is true, especially in a post-truth culture where your truth is as good as anybody's truth. But that's certainly not what God called us to do. We have to stand for truth, lovingly, of course, but we have to stand for truth. And many times when we stand for truth, we're accused of being hate mongers just because we speak the truth. But speaking the truth is not hate. Speaking the truth, in fact, is the ultimate example of love. It's the ultimate articulation of love. We love people enough to tell them the truth, even when it would be easier to lie or easier to close the windows and just hide the truth. But that's contrary to the Great Commission. It's contrary to being a light in the world. It's contrary to being a city on a hill. Everything Jesus taught us is contrary to that concept, and yet that is the spirit of the age, to push us into hiding in some way. And if they can't, if they can't force us to do it, well, maybe they can marginalize us. Maybe they can bully us. Maybe they can just intimidate us or just make us feel so weird. Nobody wants to be weird. Nobody wants to be the, the kookanani out there that everyone's laughing at. Nobody wants to stand when everyone else is bowing. 
Uh, no one wants to be the only one praying. No one wants to be the only one. Of course, I know that my audience, many of you do, and you're fine with that, but I'm speaking in generalities now. And especially if you're young listening to this or you, and no doubt you do, have young people in your life who you love who are striving to serve God, you have to understand it's much different when you're young and and you're you're trying, you're already uncomfortable with who you are. You're trying to find your place in the world and, and to stick out like a sore thumb to be, be looked at as though you're strange and weird. It's very, very intimidating for young people and make no mistake. The powers that be know that to be true. They know that to be true. They purposely place this for, this is why the universities um, in many instances have become so harmful to young Christians because they absolutely know that fact and they leverage it to their advantage and intimidate and press down and and I, I want to use the word scare, but that's not really correct. It's 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 more of a if you want to fit in, if you want to be one of us, if you want to be successful, if you want to be accepted in your career path or uh, in your field of study, then you're going to have to think like this or else you will not be accepted. That's very difficult for young people to deal with, and and we have to prepare them for that. And we have to remind them, sheer numbers are not an indication of what position, philosophy, worldview, or religious theology is correct. Packed stadiums, swelling bank accounts, and massive followings aren't accurate gauges of rightness. History is littered with atrocities committed by majorities, sometimes vast majorities, that considered themselves virtuous in their evil. This has happened all throughout the annals of history. And so if you if you look at your uh, your church, and you think, well, hey, we've got, I know we've got, you know, maybe we've got 70, or maybe we've got 20, maybe we have 500, maybe we have 1,000, but in the grand scheme of things, that's a drop in the bucket, and I'm, I'm basically by myself over here. Remember, number one, it's not true. There's a vast church around the world, millions and millions of people, but even if it were true that you were the only person who believed the truth, it would not make the truth less true. The dirty little secret is that Christianity is not dying. Dead churches are dying. Studies are finding that old mainline denominations are in sharp, steep decline, while fundamental evangelical churches are holding steady and in some cases growing exponentially. That's us, the oneness apostolics. Pentecostals like myself are interesting because we're outliers, as outliers, we're still growing. Catholics, Methodists, Episcopalians, and vast swaths of highly ceremonial denominations are losing members at a breathtaking pace. But statistics also show that churches are mostly losing what people call nominal members. Sometimes they call them the gnomes, meaning members who never really had a strong connection to their faith in the first place. They aren't maintaining membership in churches they grew up attending irregularly. For example, if you grew up a Catholic and you only went to church four times a year, you went to Mass four times a year, uh, most of those Catholic young people, their parents did it you know, just to make their parents happy. But now this generation is saying, you know what, I'm not even going to bother with that four times a year deal, and why would I identify as Catholic? It doesn't really mean anything to me. And that makes sense. 
if I was uh, in that group, if I had the misfortune of, of being raised that way, that's exactly how I would feel as well. People are no longer willing to remain connected to dead churches that don't officiate real life-changing relationships with God. Christians in name only, even in apostolic churches, are finally dropping a meaningless title and substituting it with the religion of secularism. The Easter-only crowd, as we sometimes say, is ditching Easter. And why wouldn't they abandon a weak, powerless imitation of genuine spirit-filled faith? It just doesn't make sense. But churches that actually believe in something and stand for something and and have a connection to the divine and have moving the moving of the spirit, the operation of the gifts of the spirit within their churches, those churches are growing because the reality is this, people are attracted to a church that believes something, stands for something, but isn't just doing it out of uh, some kind of mental assent or philosophical understanding. They're doing it with a real daily, and I want to emphasize that, a genuine daily relationship with God, where God is moving. They can feel God. They can touch God. They can experience God. They know that they know that they know that he's in their midst. Churches that are alive are growing. Dead churches are dying, and it's been coming for a long time. There's a thriving, passionate, multicultural church alive and well around the world. Really what's happening is the steady advancement of secularism is separating the genuine from the fake. Squishy, middle-ground Christianity is being revealed for the whitewashed tomb it's always been. So-called mainline denominations have long derided fundamentalists but the Christ of Christianity demands a radical, transformative, countercultural, multicultural, unashamed, uncompromising church, and that church is alive and well. Now, here's what we have to do as the church. We have to prepare for all of the spiritually broken refugees that are going to come out of this period of time. There's going to be a wave of emotionally, sexually, and spiritually broken well, at that point, they'll be middle-aged individuals. Many are already reeling from just the gross hopelessness that secularism produces. Godlessness produces such a, such a deep hopelessness. And it's not coincidental that suicide rates have been on the rise for many years. Now, COVID has certainly played into this drastically, and it's a real tragedy. But even before COVID, we saw that Suicide rates, particularly in in young people, was just, I mean, just almost straight up, really, really heartbreaking to look at those statistics. And and it's not a coincidence that the suicide rates correspond statistically with increased levels of atheism and, and agnosticism. As moral relativism's logical progression smashes against the walls of reality. You see, you can't you cannot reject God without rejecting hope and meaning at the same time. And so countless lives have been catapulted into turmoil. Parents who just kind of so-so believed in God and so-so served God, they half-heartedly served God. Their children watched that and said, you know what, I, I don't. that doesn't mean anything to me. But then when they rejected God completely, they were thrust into a darkness that they could not understand. 
moral relativism and logical incongruities, things that just don't make sense, are portrayed as a panacea to young people. There's they're like a utopian thinking that, you know, you can achieve this heaven on earth without God, but it's only a temporary placebo. It, it doesn't really work. Sometimes it makes them feel good for just a moment, just a little while, but that placebo effect wears off, and the church must be ready to give genuine biblical solutions and answers to these broken people who will eventually, and they'll do it gingerly, it will be, uh, it's not that they're going to come running back, but they're going to start inching their way back towards some sort of meaning. Suppose the church capitulates to the pressure to move away from biblical absolutes under the guise of maintaining momentum or moderation. I hear a lot of that. Well, if we could just get if we could just kind of minimize this little part of the Bible, let's let's just take the edges off the Bible, take some of the thorns out. Let's just, if we can just make it a little more politically correct, we don't have to take everything out. We'll keep the stuff we like, but just get a little bit of it out, you know, uh, then we will be more palatable. We'll be more appealing to this generation. And a lot of that is a knee-jerk response. It's a fearful response to what uh, some Christian leaders perceive as uh, everybody just leaving the church carte blanche. This would be the wrong response. In fact, this would be the most damaging response any church could ever, ever give. In that case, the church would cease to be the church. And it would meet the same fate as all of these mainline dead majorities of the past, the Catholics, the Methodists, the Lutherans, and we could go on. If we give up what we are, we won't be the church. And we will become exactly the statistic that all of the commentators are talking about. The only way that we will maintain momentum is to simply preach the truth with love, stand on the word of God without apology, although we should do it with clarity, we should do it with love, and we should be prepared to ask questions, answer questions. We shouldn't just uh, say, well, just do as I say. We should also say, here's why. Here's why. This is what the word says, and here's why God says it, and give answers to inquisitive and inquiring minds. Don't worry about who's bigger. Don't worry about which denomination is the largest. Don't get caught up in all of that. There's always going to be a Goliath that's bigger than the church is. Just make sure that you're representing the one true God fearlessly. Another French Family edition of Gross Good Great. Today we have boop been boop. looking forward for oh, quite a while now. Snickers yes. 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 cinnamon. Snickers cinnamon bun candy bar. Yeah. And uh, I think it's well, I don't know what it's gonna be. It kind of feels like warm and mushy. You know how a candy bar gets when it's been in the sun for a minute. So I don't know how we let it get like that but somehow it got like that and right. here we are so here it is um, i'm here looking forward to any thoughts before we try this what do you guys think you think you're gonna like it yeah the i think ingredients so ingredients are peanuts cinnamon <laughs> flavored nugget 
<laughs> Nugent, Nugent. Caramel and milk chocolate. And milk chocolate. All right. So I, I'm anticipating not liking this, actually. Ooh. Yeah, it's a little melty. So that, you know. Well, we're at the light in half caramel. dead. Okay, are we Excellent. opening it yep, now? Yeah, we're opening it up. Okay, open You're it up, dead. Julia. Take so, yours. The, the rules of gross good, great. Uh, one, two, three is gross. Four, five, six, seven is good. Eight, nine, ten is great. Has to be something that we've never eaten before. Unusual that you can get at your local grocery store. This right. is a brand new Snickers flavor. I saw it for the very first time at Walmart. Well, it's not brand new not anymore yet, because Wanda. we've been putting it off for yeah, like three Yeah, we've been months. putting it off for like three weeks. So, All right. <laughs> All right. All right, so All right everyone. We're going to take a bite. Here we go. Here we All go. Right. Two. Oh. <laughs> Five, six, seven, mm. eight. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I wish that the people at home could taste this, but mm. we're tasting it for them because that's what God called us to do. It really is a burden. <laughs> yeah, it's such a hard burden. This is one of the great sacrifices for the right. kingdom. Yes. But someone's got to do it. Right, that's right. It's like missionaries to Hawaii, you know. Someone's right, gotta, that's right. Someone has to. That's right. Someone's got to be that person. Lord, mm. Lord called me to the Bahamas. I just have to go. <laughs> okay no offense to, if the lord's genuinely called you there we're very supportive mm, kind of <laughs> <laughs> okay all right well um everyone getting their uh their rating ready yes 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 Not all yet. right all right ladies i'll we'll let you start julia you go ahead and go first since she tried it early <laughs> yeah she did taste it first Julie has a mud mask on her face, so it kind of looks like... It's a coffee mask. It kind of looks like she has Snickers. It looks like you smeared the Snickers all over your face. That's why this should be a video and not just a... This would be All right, what you got, Julia? (laughs) You're cutting out, Julia. (laughs) Play with that, you're going to cut the mic out. It tastes like... A normal Snickers. It, correct, I agree. It doesn't yeah, have it does. any difference at all from a normal Snickers. <laughs> it's just the aftertaste. So, what's your rating then? If it's a normal Snickers, what's the rating? Five. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's good. Or six. Five or six. All right. Wonderful, babe. What you got? Um, a four. Yeah, so yeah. barely good. Okay. Yes, but I don't really like um, Snickers, and it tastes exactly like a Snickers. No it does. Difference at all. It, no there's no difference. Well, I you guys are nothing. crazy there's because no I love any candy bar if it has cinnamon yeah. and peanuts and caramel anything. and chocolate. That's like my favorite no thing. And Snickers no is cinnamon. one of my favorite yeah. candy bars. So, Bub, what number did you give it? <laughs> so, I really love like Snickers and everything. That's like all my favorite. Like Twix, Snickers, and stuff. So I'm, I think I'm going to rate it an eight. An eight? Wow. Yeah. Talmadge rates the candy bars high. Well, you still rated that after you hear it contains bioengineered food ingredients? Well, it all does. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> so uh, here's the thing. I'm actually a Snickers aficionado. I love Snickers. It's one of my favorite candy bars. This did not <laughs> taste like a Snickers. This tasted like... Uh, it. The only thing that had any hint of cinnamon bond is you could taste like a little cinnamon flavor to it, which I did not enjoy with the caramel. So 
I'm going to rate it a three. To me, it was a gross. Oh. Yeah, right on. It was a gross to me. So we got an eight. We got a three. We got a six. What did you give it a four? Four. So mm-hmm. no, Julie rated it five. We're going to have to do a better job because we're we're kind of getting in ruts here with our ratings. We all kind of we're getting predictable. So we're going to have to think of things that are maybe a little less obvious. <laughs> <for us. laughs> I thought I was gonna like the Cinnabon. Stickers. Did you? I had a feeling I wasn't gonna like it. Oh, I knew I was gonna like it. I like every candy. See, we all went in with self fulfilling prophecies. We all expected a certain result, and that's what we got. Who? I feel a preach coming on. Uh, I actually <laughs> expected to like it. Did you? Yeah. Oh wow! And you didn't like it. Okay. Well. Well, I can was about anything. Like Julia it. was walking in genuine <laughs> sensitivity. <laughs> All right. Well, to All everyone, right. a happy good New Year, good year, happy night, good night, Merry Christmas. You didn't tell everyone we were sitting at our kitchen table. Oh, yeah, we're sitting at our kitchen table. Rate our podcast five stars and leave an amazing review. That's, That's a right. first. Yep, leave us a review. Hey, and share the Jordan B. Peterson article and yeah, maybe he'll see it. Yep, share it. Lots, lots of shares. All right, to all a good night. Good night, guys.